Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Lin. Hello, I'm Dr. Narjus Duma, an Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and a member of faculty at Harvard Medical School. Today, I will be your host for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. We are joined today by Heidi Nafman Onda and her husband, Dr. Pierre Onda, and they're both the founder of the White Ribbon Project. And we also have the pleasure of having patient advocate and activist Chris Draft from the Chris Draft Family Foundation. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hi. How are you doing, Dr. Duma? Great to have you here, Chris, Heidi, and Pierre. We are going to be talking to each other in first name basis as uh, we're getting to know each other, but I do know Chris for a few years now. Before we start discussing the beginnings of the White Ribbon Project, we would like to get to know the three of you better. I will start with Heidi. You have been personally affected by lung cancer. Can you share with us your journey? Yes. Being a lifelong health enthusiast, a health educator, and a fitness trainer, me and my family were just totally blindsided by my stage 3A adenocarcinoma of the lung diagnosis a little over three years ago. I had no respiratory symptoms at all, and this was an incidental finding while investigating another health issue. And I was literally told that I was pretty much a hopeless case and based on the um, positioning of my mediastinal lymph nodes and to get my affairs in order. (laughs) I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. Number one, I couldn't believe I had lung cancer. And number two, how could it be late stage? So initially, those first few days, I was just, you know, accepting what was told to me. I wasn't denying it because I wanted to get care going quickly, but I did focus on getting my affairs in order. I wanted to show Pierre how to pay the bills, things that, you know, he didn't normally do around the house. Um, He needed to be aware of, of how those things were done. And I was just in a total shock. That must have been extremely difficult. And, and I can imagine, you know, having to plan your family in your house without you, because that's what we were doing, right? Correct. <laughs> Go ahead, Heidi. Yeah, it was, again, just unbelievable because I felt fine. I had no respiratory symptoms. And I you know, was told that I had maybe four to six months with chemo radiation. And then once I met the oncologist, um, I was given so much more hope. He came walking in the door with a bright smile and um, told me that there was a new immunotherapy that had recently been approved by the FDA about a month prior to my diagnosis. And if I responded well to chemo radiation, then I could get this immunotherapy, which was going to be infusions every other week for a year, and that it had curative intent. And <laughs> my head was spinning at that point because you know I'm going from one extreme to another and thought, well, somehow the accurate you know, um, prognosis is probably somewhere in between. So I did seek out a second opinion, and that second opinion confirmed what the oncologist said. So I then you know, just started to plug through and do everything I could to make sure that I was going to be as healthy as possible to get through this and you know, complement my treatments, basically. So I continued to work as a trainer, exercising every day, eating clean, And that started to lift my family as well, because they saw that I was 
not only fighting back, but I was responding well. So it was my way of getting a little control back and listened to and complied with all of the things that my doctors had recommended for me to do to stay as strong as possible. There are so many important points in your comments, Heidi. I myself specialize in younger women with lung cancer, and we need to change the face of lung cancer. When you remove many risk factors, lung cancer becomes a disease of woman. And I'm so delighted that you're here sharing your journey. So so other people can hear your story. And besides self-identifying, they can know that we are changing. Like we need to be aware that many people are being diagnosed with lung cancer and they don't have the standard risk factors that, you know, we learn in medical school or in general through media. Correct. And I am just so grateful that this is coming to the forefront because I did not have any known risk factors. And like I said, I didn't even have symptoms. So I am considered lucky to be caught at stage three. And, you know, that's kind of sad that, you know, this isn't on the radar of the general population. I mean, I always knew to get screened for, you know, breast cancer, colon cancer, skin cancer. I mean, you name it, always been proactive and had no idea that I could be at risk for lung cancer and that there is a screening for people who are eligible and they're not even getting screened. So my hope is that through awareness and education that more focus can be made on this for, you know, anyone could get lung cancer and anyone should be able to get screened once they're a certain age. Thank you for sharing that with us, Heidi. And Pierre, as a primary care physician, you know, this must have been hard to comprehend or just to cope, you know, when you were like in the other side and you suddenly become, you know, more often have to come to business, have to come to doctors. This has been very hard. How was for you the weeks following Heidi's diagnosis? Yeah, I agree. It was probably the, one of the most stressful and anxiety-provoking periods of my life. And it was a surreal experience. You know, I, I did feel that I, uh, we, you know, we had crossed this threshold into another world. I can't remember the the author who described it, you know, it's sort of like there's the kingdom of the well and the kingdom of the sick. And, and I thought that, you know, we had crossed that. And you're right, being a physician did give me this strange perspective of, as well. The way I first found out actually was that the, the physician who ordered her scan was a, a very uh, astute and alert obstetrician who had ordered a scan for another reason for her. And uh, he contacted me. I had I had HIPAA clearance because he couldn't reach Heidi initially, but I was at the office. And he said, "Well, look, what he was concerned about turned out to be okay." But the, he said the radiologist saw a mass, and then um, he uh, called me over, and we looked at the the scan together along with the report. And the the husband and me, you know, I've known Heidi since I was eighteen, and I'm sixty now just saw the tumor that appeared to be, you know, clearly malignant. And the husband and me, you know, that's, that's the one who's diving into terror, into anxiety, into what does this mean, unknown, because it was clearly suspicious. But the physician in me, yes, I'm trying to process this information as a physician. Well, trying to convince myself that, well, this is possibly not cancer, it could be something else. The radiologist made some comments about, yeah, this could be something else, I think a fungal infection. But 
in the end, as, as physicians, when, when the radiologist says highly suspicious for, you know, primary adenocarcinoma or cancer, you know, I, I knew what that meant. So that was, you know, my initial experience that, that few weeks, fortunately, I think things have gotten better for us, but uh, that's where it was. So, you know, as a physician, it was a, a sense of irony. You know, I, tr- I had trained all these years to be a healer and there's definitely, I, I certainly couldn't cure her of lung cancer. It wasn't going to be me. Fortunately, I, I learned that caregivers can be healers in many different ways. And that's that's so true, Pierre. And, and thank you for sharing your experience. I can't imagine what we to see, you know, the scan or your spouse. I think that's a, a different level of resilience. I, I think I would probably wouldn't be able to open it, to be honest with you. So thank you for sharing that. That must have been a very difficult, not only days and months, but it's still, you know, you probably feel what more I can do. I, I went to medical school and now my wife is right. sick. So thank you both of you for sharing your journey and your experience. For some of our listeners, Chris Draft is not a stranger. He has been a patient advocate for years after unfortunately losing his wife to lung cancer. Chris, how do you become involved in lung cancer advocacy? Yeah, that's a great question, Arjus. And really, you explained it. I mean, it wasn't something that I just wanted to be a lung cancer advocate, but rather that my wife was diagnosed in December of 2010, very similar to to Heidi's story, only thing that the difference is that she just had a shortness of breath. That shortness of breath, because she had a great relationship with her primary care doc, uh, meant that she didn't wait, even though it was really faint. It, w- it wasn't much because she knew her body, because she had a great relationship with her body and she was in amazing shape. She, she said, no, I'm, I'm going to go in and get it checked out. And because of the relationship with her primary care doc, instead of just getting her antibiotics, she said, you know what, let's just get a chest x-ray just to make sure. And in so many cases, that doesn't happen. But in her case, it did. And so it came back that she had a mass in her left lung. You know, her primary care doc really quarterbacked uh, getting a, a biopsy, which we got right after Christmas in December, December 27, 2010, and then um, got a PET scan co- uh, coordinated before we even got to the oncologist so that those things would be ready. And so, the, you know, the crazy part of that, di- of that diagnosis is that we found out she had stage four lung cancer and the doctor did actually shared uh, uh, that diagnosis is actually uh, Heidi's original oncologist, Dr. Scott Kono. So uh, we have some other connections that are, are not just the White Ribbon Project, but uh, he, she was 37 years old. And I, I tell people that that's when I found out and really accepted that anyone could get lung cancer. If someone would have told me that before because of the messaging, the historical messaging and just the messaging at the time that that wasn't a part of those messages that anyone could get it. And so to have her right in front of me, this woman that's in amazing shape that has never smoked. I mean, you talk about you know, all these risk factors, really not, none of them being there, except for the idea of her breathing and, and living. And now she's diagnosed with stage four. So we, we find out that anyone can get it and then too often is diagnosed late. So stage four lung cancer. And so again, that's how I became an advocate. And, you know, number one is to stand with my wife and be there with her. I think too often we look at advocacy more from going to Capitol Hill or something so big, uh, you know, outside rather than advocacy always starts at home. That's as an individual, as uh, Heidi going in and getting checked, just like my wife, that, that's being a self-advocate. That is having the courage to go to a cancer center and, and be willing to hear the final diagnosis, being willing to come back every day and uh, follow through with the plan. You know, that takes that takes courage. I mean, it's not 
just that it is life-threatening in terms of having cancer, but the idea of continuing to believe in the system and buy into the plan and coming back is also advocacy. And so that's what my wife did, did a you know a tremendous job of just adjusting each day to the plan, made sure that she found a way to smile each day and, and continue to live uh, as much as she could. And remember that although that cancer was a part of our life, lung cancer, that she had to make sure that she was more than that and validating that by her relationships with people and and just, again, finding ways to live. But uh, unfortunately, the way lung cancer is, is that she, she passed away a year after the diagnosis, but not before we were able to get married. And, and on that day, we made a commitment to each other, November 27, 2011, and to the lung cancer community. That's when we started our team draft initiative. And I think, you know, it's so important that people recognize, you know, that, that it came from her. That my wife, Keisha, asked me, she said, what if we don't get presents? What if we stand up and fight for the community? And so she made a choice for this battle that was an individual one where she accepted that and, and fought to live, that she transitioned that. And through our team draft initiative, it was about fighting for other people. And I think it's, it's critical to know that that was, again, that starting point was based on her. And it's the critical question that all of our people have to ask. And that is that there's a point where if you want things to change, that it has to stop just being about you and it has to start being about other people. And how together can we uh, make a difference? How together can we change things and really be a part of making things better? And so that's what our commitment has been with Team Draft of changing the face of lung cancer. And uh, and, and that, you know, that commitment has had the because of my relationship with the NFL, I played in the NFL for you know 12 years, uh, which means I have tremendous relationships with the NFL. And then my wife actually had danced in the NBA, so we have relationships with the NBA and in, and in other groups. But the key was that we had to change the face of lung cancer and really making it clear what are the things that we need and want. Because if we wouldn't make those things clear, then it would never change. So, uh, man, I'm I'm excited to be here. Thank you for uh, you know for allowing me to be a part of this with you know with Heidi and Pierre and sharing the work of the White Ribbon Project and how that is, you know, it's, it's amazing. So I know I don't want to take any thunder from that, but, you know, really it's, it, it all comes back to us being loud and clear in terms of what we want and, and uh, really appreciating people from every different area that they are, that we need advocates of all different types. No one is greater than the other. You know, whatever you're willing to give is enough. Thank you, Chris, for sharing your wife's journey and how Teen Draft came about. Heidi, you are the founder of the White Ribbon Project. Can you explain to the audience and to all of us, what is the White Ribbon Project? Sure. You know, I just want people to also know that I am a very private person. And the first 10 months of my diagnosis, I didn't know anybody in the lung cancer community. I felt very alone. And as the time went by, I happened to meet a young woman, just as you have described, Dr. Duma, a young woman with no risk factors in her 30s, early 30s, when she was staged at, you know, diagnosed at stage four. And she introduced me basically to the world of advocacy um, at a lunch where I met a lot of other young women diagnosed at stage four. And I was listening to their stories and I thought, gosh, I have a background in health education. My husband's a primary care physician. Why didn't we know that anyone with lungs could get lung cancer? Again, based on the institutional messaging and what we've learned in school. And I felt at that point that it was irresponsible to 
stay quiet and that I needed to have my voice heard too. And, you know, as we were approaching my second year anniversary of survival post diagnosis, and that was during the pandemic, not only myself, but all these other advocates and advocates I had met from across the country through Zoom calls and such. We were all learning that there was like no plan for lung cancer awareness month from our cancer centers. This was national. And, and some of the, the responses we were getting were either no responses or misleading responses like, yeah, we'll get back to you. That's a great idea. And then eventually responses that were quite humiliating. And one day I just had a meltdown. I felt so defeated. It was towards the end of September of 2020. And I just screamed (laughs) to Pierre, I wish you could just make me a big white ribbon out of wood because I knew that he could woodwork that I can put on our front door and scream to the world, anyone who would hear us from our, you know, from our home that I had lung cancer. I was not ashamed of it. And it was important to start educating and talking to people about this. So Pierre, you know, whipped out a ribbon pretty quickly. And before I knew it, you know, there was this wooden ribbon that he had painted white. And I put that on the front door and I thought that looks great, but it definitely needs to say lung cancer awareness on it. And my daughter made me a label, mailed it to me. And October 5th of 2020 was when this white ribbon was born. And again, born out of my frustration over the lack of planning for Lung Cancer Awareness Month locally and nationally. I took a picture of the scene of my house, which you know had the door in the background with the ribbon on it. But I also had tied white ribbons around my trees and my mailbox. And I put that picture on this private Facebook page for advocates for these young women that I had met in Colorado saying, look, you know, we're not having much luck at the cancer centers, but we could take control. Here's a way we could at least start from home and educate our local community and feel like we are being recognized somehow. And when I put that picture out, you know, I didn't get like, oh, great idea. I'm going to go buy some ribbon. It was like, do you think Pierre would make one for me? And he was very happy to do it. And before we knew it, one extra ribbon turned into five. And now it is 1,088 ribbons made by Pierre and I since the October of 2020 across the United States. And this project is, I think, giving people the confidence to stand up and tell their stories and not be ashamed to have lung cancer. Thank you, Harry, for sharing with us. This is impressive. And and Pierre, you know, we always hear that we need to have a hobby during medical school. So were you into woodworking already when you were in medical school? How these come out? Because I'm pretty sure if I have the idea, I don't know how to do anything with wood. Yeah, no, it was a relatively recent hobby that I had developed. But uh, serendipity... And other circumstances, again, he asked how this, how this all came about. And, and I have to say, it was Heidi taking the initiative to advocate for herself and connecting with other people, such as Chris, who, who had experience in advocacy. And then simply the ask of me was something that she knew that I could do, right? She wasn't asking me to do things that that were not possible. You know, she wasn't asking me to cure her, you know, even though I felt 
that that's the one thing that I wanted to do. And so for a period of time, I felt somewhat impotent because of that. So I was so thankful that she had asked me, can you make me this white ribbon? Because absolutely, I can do that for you. So, you know, no, I can't cure you, but I can make you a white ribbon. I can make sure that you have meals that are healthy for you. I can, you know, help you to your appointments, things of that sort. So, so suddenly I think uh, the impetus of all this was Heidi's own initiative. And then, you know, finding people who, you know, could work within their, their scope of what their talents were and are. So I'm so, I'm so grateful she asked me to make her that, that ribbon. Well, thank you, Pierre, for sharing this journey, like this whole story with us. And, and I'm very glad that Heidi asked you for that ribbon, because now we have this international movement. Chris, can you tell us how this movement has grown over the last year? Because you guys are past the one year anniversary, right? Yes. So Heidi, you know, Heidi uh, explained it. I mean, it was September 27th. 2020, when she said to Pierre, make me a big white ribbon. And, uh, and he responded by making it. But it was, was October 5th when we got the label, when she got the label, that would then finish that ribbon. And I, I think you're asking the question of what, what's happened in this last year. And it's, there's been an honesty that's had, that the Owen Kids community has been facing. And that honesty starts with the reason why the ribbon was made in the first place. Heidi asked the question. What are you doing for Lung Cancer Awareness Month? And the answer was nothing, right, from cancer centers. And so when we say that there is a lack of awareness as a lung cancer community, we control the awareness. So we can't say there's a lack of awareness when there's not a plan. And in too many places, there's not a plan. And so instead of Heidi saying, oh, my goodness, it's the stigma that's holding us back, it was it, it was unacceptable to just say that there's a stigma. She said, no, if you're not saying anything, that's why there's a lack of awareness. And instead of, of just sitting back and just feeling overwhelmed with Heidi said, well, Pierre, make me a big white ribbon. And in doing that, I know that we can raise awareness. And then she challenged those other people in Denver to not come and get a white ribbon from them, but to tie ribbons around their trees. She challenged them to, to be vocal. She challenged them to be willing to talk about what's going on because if we don't talk about it, then who will? And so then they asked for ribbons. And I think, you know, this is the part that I, I just, I'm so excited about, you know, this white ribbon project, the white ribbon project and what Heidi and Pierre's commitment has been, but also that it's, it's not just their commitment because their commitment was to making one. Pierre made one for Heidi. It was the other people that responded to Heidi and Pierre and asked for more. So this is not a movement that is only started by Heidi and Pierre. It's a movement that has been validated by the lung cancer community because they didn't say, let's make a hundred or a thousand or three thousand ribbons from the start. They didn't say, let's go stack our garage with a bunch of ribbons. They didn't say that. Right. They made one and other people asked for one. And in doing that, they had a chance to grab a hold of the same control that Heidi received. They had a chance to be a part of a builds and and be you know, be able to do something and, and feel like you're not just standing by like Pierre had felt as a caregiver. 
And we've allowed family members to now be a part of this movement. We've allowed communities to be a part of this movement and realize that it, not everybody's going to be a researcher. Not everybody's going to be the oncologist. But just like breast cancer, we need all those people to be involved. And so the White Ribbon Project is, is allowing folks to find a place, to find a way to be together. We had to build a team. We needed to be an inclusive team, but we weren't. So one of the other parts is I love is that Pierre is a primary care doc and every time that he's in the room and he makes ribbons, it is a reminder to the medical community that if we don't include our primary care docs, then are we really trying to educate? What does awareness really look like? Awareness, yes, there's public awareness, but then there's awareness from our medical community. And so are we honest about how people were trained and so that we just use the natural kind of education system to retrain people or actually train them to know that anyone can get lung cancer? So this movement has been uh, amazing to me. It's been amazing, again, Heidi, uh, as a survivor that has made it absolutely and abundantly clear that she cares about all of the survivors out there. It doesn't matter smoking history, doesn't matter mutation status, doesn't matter if they're on immunotherapy, doesn't matter staging. She's got love for all of them. It doesn't matter if you're a caregiver or any type of person, whoever you are, she's got love. Pierre, as a, as a, again, as a primary care doc, is a reminder that we need to include all of our people that are a part of this, from the health educators that are reaching out on the ground, again, to the primary care docs, to the pulmonologists that that Heidi met initially that didn't realize that there was hope, right? Uh, you know, to the gynecologist, the, you know, the OB that, that, that went a little bit further and, and found out that she had it. I mean, we need to embrace all of those people knowing that it's going to take a team to tackle lung cancer. And then be honest about if we're not doing that, just like when, when Heidi had that ribbon made, if we're not actually bringing awareness, then we cannot complain that there's a lack of awareness. That's what the White Ribbon is. The White Ribbon Project is a challenge, to be honest, about where we actually are and where we actually want to go. No, and who do we want to bring with us? Do we want everybody on board? Do we really believe that anyone can get lung cancer and that we're sharing with people, with the masses, because we actually care about them? Not that we're just trying to get them on board so that they can help us out, but that we actually believe that anyone can get it. So just like breast cancer, we're asking them to invest in something that is moving forward. The White Women Project is challenging that. Again, the honesty of this community, and then within that, the honesty to know that if we want it to change, that we have all the ability to make that happen. That's what you've seen all over the country as Heidi and Pierre drove over <laughs> a whole bunch of miles <laughs> and people were standing up and making ribbons all over. But the reality is that we've only made a little bit over 3,000 ribbons and 235,000 people approximately will be diagnosed in this country. Now, ideally, you know, every year in the, in the United States. So ideally, we'd love them all to have a, a ribbon to, to make sure that they know that they are not alone. But the ability to make ribbons that fast, it's going to be a little bit difficult. But I think the challenge as we go in here to Lung Cancer Awareness Month is one that recognizes that we don't need a ribbon. We don't have to have a ribbon to meet people with love, to meet them with love and understanding. That is the challenge of the White Ribbon Project, because that is exactly how the first ribbon was made. It was made with love. 
and everything that we do has to have has to be the same way. Do we love our community enough to do everything we can to take care of? Thank you, Grace, for sharing that and for sharing your passion with us. And, you know, early in the conversation, we heard that Heidi reached out to you. How was that first contact? How this relationship with the Chris Draft Foundation or the Draft Foundation came about? So I met, I met Heidi because of a, another survivor that has been a tremendous part of the White Ribbon Project, Ann Phillips, in Denver. And so when I... Uh, started, you know, after my wife had passed, uh, you know, it was obvious that as a, as a team, our lung cancer community was a poor team that did not uh, really embrace our survivors and the advocates that were out there that could be transformative. And so, so much of my travels were to find those amazing people that uh, potentially weren't being embraced by their cancer centers, because if there wasn't a, uh, a survivor support group or uh, advocacy groups that, that they could easily be left out. And so I was coming to Denver and Ann Phillips said, hey, I've got this amazing lady that I just met. I think she could be a great advocate. <laughs> well, I think it's pretty obvious now that Ann is a, uh, has a great eye for talent. I had a chance to meet Heidi at, a, at a, a luncheon with some other survivors. And she told me about her husband, Pierre. And uh, I said, oh, my goodness, you guys are going to change the world. And uh, I think it's, you know, you're seeing it now, but it was pretty obvious. I know they probably were thinking I was a little bit crazy by saying that, but uh, I think everybody's getting a chance to see that when you empower people that are passionate, that are, that really will absolutely lead with love, uh, that it's obvious to see that they're game changers. What we had to do uh, and what we have to continue to do as a lung cancer community is just get out of the way and let them shine. Thank you, Chris, for sharing that. So Heidi, what is the power of the ribbon and why the ribbon matters? Well, I believe the ribbon is a symbol of hope and connection for people. Like I had said initially, it, it took me, why was it so difficult to find the community? I mean, there, there was like nothing out there. When I was diagnosed, I was given a binder full of you know, information about the chemotherapy and immunotherapy that I would be on and all of the terrible things that were going to happen to me but not one thing about support, not one thing about advocacy organizations that are out there to support you and help you. And when I saw that people wanted this, I mean, it gave me, you know, it gave me power that day back in my, in my life that I felt was stripped away from me when I was diagnosed, but I didn't know that that would become universal, that everybody else would feel like that. And when I saw what people were doing with this ribbon on their own, you know, taking pictures, standing with the ribbon with their doctors at cancer centers or in their communities or at, you know, public landmarks and putting those images on social media. I thought to myself, no one looks ashamed in these pictures. Number one, they want a ribbon that's screaming lung cancer awareness. So they either, either have lung cancer or they love somebody who has lung cancer and they want to be seen and heard. And it reminded me of my days back in Los Angeles in the early 90s when I worked with the HIV AIDS community. And, you know, talk about a stigma. I mean, people, you know, were ready to stand up and demand care. And now that's one of the, you know, top funded infectious diseases by the NIH because of awareness. And when people realized that this could happen to anyone, it became important to them. And so, 
when people were doing their own things, making very public awareness possible with the ribbon, giving them the confidence to do that, I thought, maybe we are onto something here that can crack this stigma, get the stories out there, get this humanized and not just have it be hidden behind a stigma, which we shouldn't have to feel whether people have a smoking history or not. When people smoke, they get addicted to it. It's not easy to stop. And, you know, we don't put that blame on people with other health conditions that I've worked with, people who get type 2 diabetes, who can't, you know, stop that behavior of, you know, not being mobile and not eating right, you know, that we need to see past that and get people proper care. They're, they're not to blame for their disease, their conditions. And, you know, the other thing is to not feel alone, you know, for people to see these ribbons again, you know, Chris and the pandemic were so instrumental in this taking off because Chris, before the White Ribbon Project, was holding Zoom calls every Saturday to get people together and, you know, keep our spirits up and, you know, talk about, you know, what were we going to challenge our cancer centers to do for Lung Cancer Awareness Month? And how are we going to work on our advocacy skills and so forth? And that's where people were seeing the ribbon in my background in the office and asking for them. I never would have met these people had we not had these lockdowns and and the Zoom calls. So that really helped get us connected, got us, I would say, bonded to one another too, because meeting survivors, you know, and I think other caregivers meeting each other, there's almost this you know, unrehearsed, you know, dialogue that goes on. That's like, oh my gosh, that's someone I can identify with. And you find your community. So, you know, giving people confidence to stand and talk and not be ashamed of their condition and to never feel alone is incredibly powerful. Thank you, Heidi. Your voice resonates with so many patients and so many stories I have here in clinic because. Unfortunately, we need to remove the stigma around this disease is holding us back and is really affecting patients, caregivers, families. And to a point that as a doctor, sometimes, you know, it it can be hard and, you know, walking patients to how to disclose a diagnosis is, is part of the lung cancer medical oncologist, but my colleagues don't have that in which, you know, I, I coach my patients how to, if they want to disclose a diagnosis when for other cancer types, you don't have that issue, right? It is a whole thing about disclosing your diagnosis for patients with lung cancer. As we move forward, Pierre, you have been with Heidi in this journey. Where are some of the obstacles that you know the project has faced early on, particularly by launching a project in the middle of a COVID-19 pandemic? Right. And Certainly, Heidi and Chris can can speak to that as well. I think at a personal level, initially, it's really was we're a grassroots organization, and Heidi and I had no experience in advocacy. And so, fortunately, running into people such as Chris and other lung cancer survivors and some caretakers with experience, that was helpful. But the biggest challenge, I think, was just that is how do we find the people and the resources who are aligned 
with our vision and messaging. And so again, it took us some time before we were able to connect with the, you know, organizations uh, that you're affiliated with, such yourselves as the IASLC and other, you know, advocacy groups and other subject matter experts. I mean, that has been crucial because ultimately, again, as Chris can said, it's Heidi and I alone can't do this. We we require a much larger community and people in order to bring awareness about the true facts about lung cancer to the general public. I mean, that that ultimately is one of our our larger goals. You know, we need to go beyond the lung cancer community and to the general public, and and we cannot do it by ourselves. And so, um, certainly, a, a big thanks to to you and the IASLC for having us on this podcast because it is it is one of the necessary steps to get our message out. Thank you, Pierre and Heidi. I'm very interested to learn how these events are planned and how's the way the best way for listeners to find out when and where the event is taking place. They here in Massachusetts notified me, but I was getting a surgery, so I couldn't make it to the event. So how can I find out where is the next Y Ribbon Project event happening next to me? Yeah, so because we're grassroots and we you know, have to depend on the comfort level of the people hosting the events, we have to let them decide how many people, how they want to get the word out and so forth. Again, you know, because of, you know, they're hosting on their property generally. And also because of pandemic, you know, guidelines are are differing in different cities and states. But generally those those people will broadcast it out to either their Facebook groups or their advocacy circles. And then word spreads from there. So this summer, we did have people reach out to us who did want to have these builds, and we were able to build a calendar, and we were able to engage many cancer centers as well. And we would have scientists and oncologists host them and, again, determine their comfort level in terms of numbers. Chris, maybe you want to chime in here as well. It's, it's kind of difficult to make it widely public. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, so- it's funny that you asked that question. You were saying, how do I know about a, a ribbon bill? The, the real question is, how do you get a ribbon? Because once you have a ribbon, then you have the template to be able to have your own ribbon build. And so literally, ribbon building is all about the people that have ribbons that want to make sure that other people do not feel alone. And so literally, again, that, that question is, well, when, can, when is there another ribbon bill? Well, when do you want to have one? And then you can go from there. And it, but really recognizing that Heidi and Pierre can only make so many by themselves. And so this this grassroots movement has been that uh, a grassroots movement that really challenges our communities to really stand up and proclaim that they care about each other and that no one is alone. That it's not somebody from Denver, not Heidi and Pierre from Denver that are saying to people in Boston, hey, you're not alone. But really that the Boston community is making it clear. So ideally, with with Lung Cancer Awareness Month, we would want every survivor that comes through Dana-Farber, every survivor that comes through Mass General, Leahy, and all the other cancer centers that are right there in the Boston area, that all of them would get ribbons. Well, that that can't fall back on on Heidi and Pierre or, this again, this national group, but really, that's a commitment that has to be done by the community. And 
we have to decide, are we willing to wait for somebody to know that they're not alone? So when do we want to have those builds? Ideally, as soon as possible. But what does it take but really building relationships and finding people that want to be a part of that? So I guess, again, the answer to that question is that we can have a build at any time. It's based on the relationships that you have, that everyone have in their communities. It's not just about a survivor when they're ready, but really acknowledging that the community can be a part of that, even if they don't have a direct connection with lung cancer, but if they're woodworkers and they care. So I guess that, that's what I say is that that's how it's going to work. And that's how it's been working is that as long as we are open to people joining in and, and really make it clear that we don't want people to feel alone and that this ribbon is a symbol of that, then you can have ribbon builds basically every week. Thank you for that. I would love to host an episode of ribbon building. The problem is oh. after I left the Midwest, I moved to a one bedroom apartment, Heidi. It would be very oh. challenged to be compliant <laughs> yes. with COVID-19 rules in my tiny Boston apartment, but we can figure it out. We can figure it out, certainly. Yeah, that would be awesome. And yeah, definitely get your community involved. I mean, that's been the beauty of this too, is getting people together to meet. You know, it was one thing Pierre and I originally mailing these hundreds of ribbons across the country. But this summer when we were actually able to hand ribbons to people or drop them off if they were too ill to be able to, you know, meet you know, at a community build to leave it at their doorstep and see them through their window and wave to them and give them a virtual hug. I mean, that was so powerful. I mean, I'm getting emotional now just reliving this, you know, and to see and give the gift of unity and not feeling that empty space of being alone is makes my life very meaningful. Thank you, Heidi. Go ahead. If I can say it, and other people can feel that. If it's about people, there are so many folks that can get on board. And and I and I'm saying that, you know, I know you're you're you just moved, so it can seem like that that is a restriction. But if we see it as being always a team, then you can see how there's other people. And so when you you know, I've got there's high schools right now that want to make ribbons. There's Girl Scouts that want to make ribbons, there's Boy Scouts that want to make ribbons, church groups that want to make ribbons. If we don't put restrictions on the group by having to have a direct connection, then what we'll do is we'll see that there are people in our communities that are already doing something similar that would love to be a part of it. And, you know, as Heidi said, that, you know, the, the ability to make sure somebody doesn't feel alone. I mean, it's so it's such a powerful part of this movement that it, that we, it challenges us to try to make as many as possible and give them directly to people. Well, thank you for all of that. The comment about my apartment was a joke. From the Midwest <laughs> to Boston, it was a significant shrinkage sure. for a house to this tiny little box. So it is a recurring joke as, you know, from Midwest dimensions to Boston dimensions was uh, quite a change for my overweight cat. So <laughs> <laughs> we're unfortunately about to run out of time, but we want to finish this episode by asking some personal wisdom that you can share with any patient, caregiver, or anyone that would like to get involved in advocacy, not only related to lung cancer, but related to any diseases that are affecting our population. So I'm going to start with Heidi. What is one to two pearls of wisdom that you can share to anyone that's listening that wants to become more active in the lung cancer advocacy space or any advocacy space? 
So perseverance is really important. You just keep trying. If you have something in specific, you know, specific goal, you sometimes you have to learn who to talk to. So if someone says no to you, that may not be the final answer. It just may not be the right person. And with this particular project, we have found in order to engage the cancer centers, it's best to start with your doctor. The mistake we were making where we were going to media relations initially. And, you know, if you go to your doctor who is a champion in lung cancer, I mean, they have your best interests at heart and they also want lung cancer to get on the radar of general population. We have found that that relationship helps to engage the people who need to get involved and help your cancer centers do something for lung cancer awareness. And the other thing that I think is really important is to understand that there's a spectrum of advocacy. You know, there are some people who are just so well educated in science or have been able or have that gift of being able to learn it and have become these like extremely knowledgeable, you know, about their particular type of lung cancer and they can advocate for more research funding there and present at conferences and so forth. And that might be very intimidating for the person, you know, the average person with lung cancer and feel like, gosh, I can't advocate because I can't do that. Well, you can advocate with a ribbon. You can advocate by telling your story. You can advocate by pushing the share button on your computer when you see something amazing pop up that a cancer center is doing or amazing research that's come out and tag your particular cancer center to get it on their radar. So. There's, there's no limits to what one can do. It's whatever one is comfortable doing with advocacy and they should go for it because that's what we need. We need everyone. Thank you, Heidi. So Pierre, as a healthcare provider, where's one or two pairs of wisdom to anybody who's interested in joining a movement like the White Ribbon Project? Yeah, I, I, I think Heidi, I agree with Heidi. For us, initially was having a, a clear vision, what really is the larger mission of what we're trying to accomplish, and then starting off pretty small for some early wins. You know, and for Heidi, it was, I'm going to start off by uh, having a white ribbon hang on my door. And that was an early win. And then we moved on from there. So don't make your advocacy more complicated than it needs, than it needs to be. And then clearly, I would say is there's nothing better than finding other people to work with, building a team, doing something all by yourself at times can be the most challenging thing. So finding other like-minded people to work with you and support you is, is very helpful. Thank you, Pierre. And Chris, you have been in the advocacy group for a long time, not a long time, just longer than Heidi and Pierre. What personal wisdom do you have for any future advocates? Well, I would say it's been a long time. This is uh, almost, this is 10 years this year of, of, of Team Draft. So, uh, and then I've been an advocate be longer than that. And so I would say that the, the biggest thing is being honest about what the real problem is. And so a lot of times our community says, I don't know why research dollars are low. Well, are we honest about the fact that, that we tell people that research matters? If someone doesn't know that you can get lung cancer without having a smoking history, have we made it clear that you can get lung cancer? So we need to be honest about our messaging and our messaging are going to have consequences. So know that, believe that. And so 
The other part is we need to be honest about the history. The cigarette industry got indicted in 1998 based on predatory marketing and making cigarettes more addicting. So if somebody has a smoking history, it literally was proven that they're victims of an industry and proven so much that they actually put money on it. So it's not just that we, you know, that when somebody comes in and has a smoking history that we just got to have kid gloves with them, but really just acknowledge that they've been fighting against the system and that system got indicted, right? So let's, let's own it, own the history. And then the other part that says that we need to have a team, absolutely. But a team doesn't just happen. A team is something that you have to build. And so are we going to allow people to be a part of this team? Do we believe that this fight is worth it, right? I do. But we have to validate that as a team and, and realize that we're going to make progress. And progress doesn't mean that we're going to arrive. And so along the way, we have to love all our people, which we can, all the people that are diagnosed to make sure that they are loved along with their caregivers and their family. But the other part, which is critically important, that along this fight is really appreciating the people that are on the ground that are doing the work, right? That know that nothing changes without the people that are willing to do the work. And that's why the ribbons don't just go again to the survivors, but that's why so many so many medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, surgeons, primary care docs, pulmonologists, so many people have received the ribbons with so many more that need them based on our appreciation that they are on the ground putting in the work and that's what's going to change things. Thank you, Chris. And my message to any researcher out there, investigator, physician, early faculty is that we need to incorporate our patients, advocates, and activists to everything we do. There is the voice that needs to be heard. This is the studies that need to be do as, need to be done is what our patients need. They provide a perspective that nobody else can. And I'm taking a few seconds just to thank Jill Philman and Ivy Elkins that have followed and supported my career since I was a resident with this idea of having a clinic dedicated for women with lung cancer. So I'm extremely thankful to the three of you for the time, the dedication, the effort, and everything you have done for our community and helping our patients not feel alone, which has been extremely difficult, particularly during the pandemic. Well, thanks everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Concerted, the official ISLC podcast. I hope you tune in the first and the third Mondays of each week. To listen, we appreciate the time and passion of our guests, Heidi, Pierre, and Chris from the White River Project. Thank you for your time. And please follow the White River Project on social media and at their sites. Thank you, Pierre, Heidi, and Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. I thought I knew you. I thought it was inferred, then you surprised me. Love me more than I deserve. It's a lesson in love, it's truth can be intense Beyond all feeling, emotion and sense And I hear these words spoken in youth with angst
Street strength is more powerful now than middle age and past. All the bullets that life shoots at you, the things they cloud over your love. And in my dream, I thought I was flying. In reality, I was falling And in my dream I thought You had left for the night But in reality You cradled me so tight I looked towards others I thought we'd be the same, but when we spoke last night, it was clear on one page. It still amazes me the unconditionality you retain. I see we're both changed. And in my dream, I thought I was flying, but in reality, But in reality, you cradle me.